she loved her um, poodle. She loved Sissy. Um, and she loved her sister and her little brother. Like a little mama hen with them, you know, she, she loved taking care of the babies. So I think she would have really been a good teacher. Born in Ralph, Alabama, Belle had three sisters and one brother. The family reportedly moved frequently, with Belle attending Euclid High School in Columbia, South Carolina from 1965 to 1967. The Bells moved to Mississippi, where Larry Jean Bell graduated high school and trained as an electrician. He returned to Columbia, South Carolina, married, and had one son. Bell joined the U.S. Marine Corps in 1970, but was discharged the same year due to a knee injury suffered when he accidentally shot himself while cleaning a gun. The following year, he worked as a correctional officer at Department of Corrections in Columbia for one month. Bell and his family moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina, in 1972. The couple divorced in 1976. Most people know of one murder when they hear the name Larry Jean Bell, and some know of two people. Many others have no clue about his past. Bell remains a suspect in the case of two women, 26-year-old Sandy Elaine Cornett and 21-year-old Denise Newsom Porch. Both women disappeared from Charlotte, North Carolina. Sandy was engaged to a co-worker of Bell's, and apparently Bell had attended a party at her apartment before. She was last seen November 1984. Denise managed the Yorktown apartments where she also lived. This was in Charlotte, not far from Rock Hill. The last time anyone saw her was when she was showing a man around the Yorktown apartments on July 31, 1975. She had left her husband a note letting him know what she was doing. Despite the extensive search, Denise was never seen again. She was declared legally dead in 1982. Bell became a suspect in Denise's disappearance after he was convicted of murder for Sherry Smith and Deborah Helmick. As it turned out, Bell had been living only 300 yards from the Yorktown apartments when Denise disappeared in 1975. Dale Sauls was assaulted by Larry Jean Bell in 1975. At the time of the attack, she was married and her name was Dale Sauls Howell. It was a Friday morning, the morning of February 21, 1975. A 19-year-old blonde woman named Dale Sauls Howell needed laundry detergent. So she walked from her apartment behind a shopping center on Cherry Road to what was then the Super Duper Grocery Store. That walk would change her life forever, hurt her and still hurts her, because in that parking lot of that store, a man sat in a green Volkswagen. That man tried to abduct her. That man lived in Rock Hill, South Carolina in those days on Saluda Street. He was arrested about three months later and pled guilty and got probation. That man's name was Larry Jean Bell. The same Larry Jean Bell, who ten years later would kidnap and kill two blonde girls near Columbia, South Carolina. But before he was caught, after those girls were missing for almost a month, people around the state were afraid to let their kids go outside to play. 
The name is never Belle or Larry. It's always all three, Larry Jean Bell. The name for 22 years has been synonymous in South Carolina with evil. Bell died in the electric chair in 1996. A retired state law enforcement division forensic photographer named Rita Schuler wrote a recently published book about his crimes. And in researching this book, found this lady from Rock Hill who was Bell's first confirmed victim. In 1975, Dale Sauls Howell was married with a young son. After her husband died many years later, she changed her name back to Sauls. I noticed the guy sitting in the green Volkswagen, Sauls said, on that February 1975 morning. I walked across the parking lot and he got out. He said, let's go to Charlotte and party. And I said no. And he grabbed me and spun me around, stuck a knife to my stomach, and I started screaming. People inside the store heard the screams and called the police. Bell took off in that Volkswagen south on Cherry Road. He was caught near the intersection of Charlotte Avenue. Police reports show Sauls went to the Rock Hill Police Department and identified Bell. I saw him there sitting in that chair and started screaming, she remembered. Larry Jean Bell, who worked at Eastern Airlines in Charlotte, was charged that same day with assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature. The police report shows an open knife was found in his car. Bell did press a knife against her abdomen in a threatening manner and attempt to abduct her, the arrest warrant stated. The same day, court records show a woman from Columbia put up a $5,000 bond for Bell, and he was free. I couldn't sleep worrying about it, Sauls said of Bell's release. Sauls said she kept a baseball bat in the bed with her. She hated to be by herself at night. Court records show that in York on May 26, 1975, Bell pleaded guilty. He received a five-year sentence that was suspended to five years probation. He was supposed to seek mental health counseling for attacking women. Documents do show. I was never told about the hearing, Sauls said. I didn't find out until that night. I did not even get a chance to go to court. Ricky Sauls, her brother, said the family knew about Bell's release on bond, but were told nothing else afterward until finding out that Bell had already pleaded guilty. We never even got a chance to go to court, Ricky Sauls said. The police and court officials involved in this case are long gone from those offices. But it is now the law. It was not in 1975. But now required, it has been for years that the victims had to be told of the court appearances and be given the opportunity to address the court during sentencing. Lieutenant Jerry Waldrop of the Rock Hill Police Department said, York County probation officials said when Bell was sentenced in May 1975, he had a Columbia address and his probation location was shifted there. Records there also show he had no prior criminal record before the Rock Hill arrest and convictions. In June 1976, Bell's probation was revoked after he was convicted and sentenced to five years for attacking a University of South Carolina female student in October 1975 in Columbia. Bell could have faced 30 to 40 years after the second conviction, 
but there was testimony in the 1976 trial that he again would seek treatment for attacking that woman. Bell was paroled in March 1978 after serving 21 months of that five-year sentence in prison after the 1976 Columbia conviction. A spokesperson for the South Carolina Department of Probation, Parole, and Pardon Services said, In 1979, Bell was charged with making obscene phone calls in Charlotte. In 1985, Bell was arrested and charged with kidnapping and killing two girls, one a blonde teen named Sharon Faye Smith and another blonde girl named Deborah May Helmick. Helmick was just nine years old. Sauls was terrified the first time she saw Bell's picture in the newspaper and on television for killing because she knew it was the same man who had attacked her all those years before. After his arrest in 1985, Bell was questioned in the disappearance of Sandy Cornett of Charlotte, but never charged. In 1986, Bell was convicted and sentenced to die for the Smith murder. Sauls was there to testify for prosecutors to show his history of attacking women. I was there the whole time, she said. I had Larry Jean Bell's face in my mind every day since he did that to me. Court testimony from the 1986 Smith murder trial shows Bell only went for treatment once after the Rock Hill attack. Then he turned himself into a mental health treatment center several days after the October 1975 attack in Columbia. He spent three months at a treatment center Testimony from the 1986 Smith trial shows Bell was convicted and sentenced to die in 1987 for the murder of Helmick. For nine years, Bell's appeals worked through the courts. Sauls relived what happened to her during those years, too, feeling guilty that something more could have been done to protect the other victims after she was attacked. I was terrified he'd get out on some mental things, she said. A movie about Bell's killings called Death of Innocence was made in 1991 and filmed partly in York. On October 4th, 1996, after all the appeals were over, Larry Jean Bell was strapped into the electric chair and finally, Howell knew he was dead. She knew because she was there, outside the prison, and watched the hearse leave with his body. She was safe, but never escaped. Ricky Sauls said his sister's life has been affected by what Bell did and what he says the system did not do. Ricky said what happened to Bell for holding his sister at knife point? Probation? That's a miscarriage of justice. Police should have charged Bell with attempted kidnapping at least, Ricky said. I think Larry Jean Bell was a serial killer. He just got caught, Ricky said. How many people he raped and killed, we will never know. Assault and battery of a high and aggravated nature is a misdemeanor that carries up to 10 years in prison. It was not uncommon more than 30 years ago for someone convicted of that charge to get a probation sentence on a first offense, said Schuler, the retired sled agent. Looking back 32 years, to say police and prosecutors or a judge could have done something different is not entirely fair because police, prosecutors, and the courts are different today. The police should be praised for acting swiftly that 1975 day, catching Bell just minutes after the attack. Moreover, it won't change that Larry Jean Bell had no record when convicting in York County in 1975. No matter what he was charged with on that day, 
In all guilty plea, then and now, a judge has to listen to the fact of the case before giving out a sentence. Although each has no proof, Schuler and Sauls herself and her brother all say there is no doubt that Bell did not start attacking women on that Friday, that February day of 1975, when he was just 27 years old and living on Saluda Street in Rock Hill. Schuler said she wrote the book so victims like Sauls are not forgotten, so the name Larry Jean Bell is not the only name anybody will ever remember. The name Larry Jean Bell sure is a name Del Sauls will never forget. Go check out Rita Schuler's book, Murder in the Midlands, 28 Days of Terror That Shook South Carolina. It was May 31, 1985, and the schools across the United States were finishing up for the summer. 17-year-old Sherry Smith of Lexington, South Carolina, had just completed her final year at Lexington High School. The following days were going to be busy, but Sherry was excited. Her graduation ceremony, where she would be singing the national anthem, was taking place on June 2nd. Then, she and a group of friends would set off on a cruise to celebrate the end of their high school years and the beginning of their new chapter. Sharon Sherry Faye Smith was born June 25, 1967, to Hilda and Robert Bob Smith in Columbia, South Carolina. Sherry was the middle child. She had an older sister and a younger brother. They were a tight-knit, loving family. They were highly regarded and influential in the Lexington area, where they were active in their church and the community. Sherry had bouncy blonde curls, a rosy complexion, and bright blue eyes. She was bright, outgoing, and radiated positivity. Friends and family could always count on her to lift them up if they were ever feeling down. The sun shone brightly that final day in May. Sherry had spent the afternoon at a pool party with her friends. At 3.38 p.m., she arrived back at her home on Platt Springs Road in Lexington. A driveway about 200 meters long led up from the main road to the Smith home. At the end of the driveway was the Smith's mailbox. Sherry's father, Bob, glanced out the window of his office and saw Sherry turning into the driveway in her car. Expecting she would come through the front door at any minute, he went back to doing what he was doing. About five or ten minutes later, however, he realized he had not heard Sherry come in. Looking back out that window again, he saw her car sitting at the end of the driveway next to the mailbox. Odd, Bob thought to himself. What was taking her so long? He got this distinct feeling in his gut that something was not right. Bob hopped in his car and sped down the driveway. Once he arrived at the mailbox, it was clear to Bob that he was right to be concerned. There was Sherry's car, but no Sherry. The engine was still running and the door was wide open. On the passenger seat sat Sherry's purse. There were barefoot marks leading from the driver's side door to the mailbox, but not coming back. Several pieces of mail were laying on the ground next to the mailbox. From the beginning, it was clear that Sherry would not have left on her own accord. She was content and happy in life, loved her family, and was excited for the summer ahead of her. Furthermore, she was diabetic and would not have gone anywhere without her medication. 
On examining the scene, it appeared to investigators that Sherry had gone from her car to the mailbox, was snatched by someone, and dropped the mail. Right away, investigators from Lexington County Sheriff's Department organized a manhunt. At the time, it was the largest to take place in South Carolina history. Despite this, it did not turn up any clues as to Sherry's whereabouts. The Smith family were sick with worry and publicly pleading with Sherry's captor to let her go. Otherwise, all they could do was wait, and the feeling of helplessness and lack of control were unbearable. For the first time in my life as a father and protector of my household, I was not in charge of my home, Bob later recalled. Two days after Sherry disappeared, on the evening of June 2nd, the Smiths got a phone call from an unknown man who had distorted his voice. He asked to speak to Sherry's mother, Hilda. Sherry is with me, he told her. The man described the black and yellow swimsuit Sherry had on under her clothes to prove to Hilda that this call was not some kind of prank. He told her that Sherry was doing well and they were watching TV together. While he did not demand any money in exchange for her return, he did tell Hilda that they would be receiving a letter in the mail the following day. Detectives traced the call to a payphone 20 miles from the Smith home in Columbia, but time was not on their side. By the time they were able to pinpoint the precise location and travel there, whoever had made that phone call was gone. Detectives arrived at the Lexington Post Office the following morning and had begun sorting through the mail. Sure enough, they found a letter addressed to the Smiths. The letter which was two pages in length, was written on paper from a yellow legal pad. It was in Sherry's handwriting. Across the top, she had written, Last Will and Testament. Several times throughout the letter, Sherry emphasized to her family how much she loved them. She wrote that they should never let this ruin their lives. The most frightening was her request that she wanted to have a closed casket at her funeral. Having accompanied detectives to the post office, Bob was the first to read the letter. He was devastated, but refused to abandon hope that his daughter might still come home. What he dreaded the most was telling Hilda what the letter said. The letter was sent to South Carolina Law Enforcement Crime Lab. Here it would be examined by Forensic Document Examiner for any clues, examples, fibers, fingerprints, handprints, or any discrepancies in the spelling or handwriting. By this time, SLED had fully set up on location of the Smith's residence and were tracing and recording all calls. Of 
Over the next few days, the Smiths received several more calls from the same distorted voice. Yeah, 
still there? And, and he admits 
we've got a lot of problems, and we'll, we'll work them out. And her brother and sister love her. And oh, gosh. God bless you for taking care of my baby. Mary is protected, and like you said, she is a part of me now. And God look after all of us. Yeah. Good night. Good luck to you, too. The Smiths received another call the next day, June 4th, and this time Sherry's sister Dawn spoke with Sherry's captor. Hello? Uh, Dawn? Yes? Uh, this is Sherry's face request. Have your mother get on the other phone quickly. To get on the other phone. Get on the other phone, mother. Get a pencil and piece of paper ready. Get a pencil ready. and paper ready. Okay. Prayers and relief coming soon. Please learn to enjoy life 
on June 5th at around noon, he called the Smiths again. Detectives followed the directions he provided. Hilda begged to go along, but they convinced her it would not be a good idea. What they found confirmed everyone's worst fears. Sherry's body was exactly where the man said it would be, behind the old Masonic Lodge in Saluda County, 18 miles west of the Smith home. The autopsy showed that Sherry had been dead for about four days. In fact, the medical examiner estimated that she had been killed about 12 hours after being kidnapped. During all of the time of the taunting phone calls, Sherry was already deceased. They were unable to determine her cause of death, but a residue of duct tape on Sherry's face suggested that she had died from suffocation. Pieces of her hair had been cut off because the tape had gotten stuck in it. This indicated to detectives that whoever killed Sherry knew what he was doing, as any clues he left on the body might lead them to him. For example, his fingerprints may have ended up on the duct tape. Due to the extended period of time of Sherry's body spent in the elements of the heat, no forensic evidence was recovered. They could not definitely prove whether or not Sherry had been sexually assaulted. When the man said on the phone that he and Sherry had become one soul on June 1st at 4.58 a.m. Detectives assumed that was the time he killed her. FBI agents came up with a detailed profile of Sherry's killer. They categorized him as a organized killer. He was sophisticated in his methods and had been planning this murder for a while. It was possible that he had committed sex crimes or crimes of a similar nature before. According to their profile, he would be young, in his mid to late 20s or early 30s, white, homely, and overweight. He had likely been married, but now divorced or separated. He was above average in intelligence, with a knowledge of electronics, given that he had altered his voice from the payphone calls. He was not impulsive or one to take chances. From listening to the recordings of the phone calls... FBI agents and detectives working the case were convinced that he was reading from a script he had written. The giveaway was that he sometimes stumbled or would go back to the beginning of a sentence and start over, saying the exact same phrase. Careful examination of the evidence led Douglas and Walker investigators to the conclusion that this was not one-off for Sherry's killer in all likelihood. He would kill again if not captured. He was drunk on the feeling of power and control that manipulating Sherry's family gave him. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that he yearned for these feelings to continue. Even after Sherry's body was found, her killer was not done rubbing salt into the Smith's family's wounds. He really enjoyed speaking to Dawn on the phone. On June 6, he called the Smith's home again. Dawn answered, and he told her that he was planning to turn himself in in the next days. But he was contemplating killing himself instead. 
He also called Charlie, a news reporter, to try to set up a deal with the sheriff.
name, please?
me tell you something, okay? God can forgive you. Well, I have to go now, Don. I know the... Uh, and through God, we can forgive you also. Why are you talking to people out there? 
did you have? and 
such a beautiful young life. I mean, and blown away that with over a 20-minute phone call, they still did not catch him. Hello? I have a thought. Dr. John Smith from Sherry. Will you pass the call? From who? Sherry. Yes. Okay, please. John, like the break of day. What? Like the break of day. Like the break of day. Sherry. No, I said uh, concerning Sherry. Everybody screwed up here. Excuse my friend. Okay, I'll, 
Phone calls seemed to have ceased, but Sled was still standing by waiting on another call while other authorities searched for this killer. Two weeks after Sherry was kidnapped from outside of her home, her killer struck again, just as the FBI were sure he would. This time, he snatched nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick from her front yard in nearby Richland County, 24 miles from the Smith home. It was broad daylight, like Sherry. Deborah was pretty, blonde, and blue-eyed. She had been playing outside with her younger siblings, and her father was inside the house, just like Sherry. Deborah was there one second and gone the next. It had been eight days since his last phone call to the Smiths' home. Detectives needed him to get in contact again, so FBI agents Douglas and Walker came up with a plan. Whoever killed Sherry and kidnapped Deborah loved attention. As I mentioned previously, he was like an above-average intelligence. No doubt he believed he was smarter than the detectives in this case. The agents thought they may be able to lure him out of hiding with a memorial service for Sherry at the cemetery, with Dawn playing a central role given that he was obviously very fond of her. He would be paying close attention to the media carefully consuming every story related to Sherry and Deborah, all the while patting himself on the back for having evaded capture. If the local media made a big enough story out of the memorial service, there was a good chance that he would attend, stand in the back, and silently gloat. 
The media coverage of the memorial was just what the agents hoped for. Members of the community came from far and wide to support the Smiths. At the instructions of Agent Douglas, Dong brought a small stuffed koala bear, Sherry's favorite animal, and laid it at her sister's grave along with the bouquets of flowers. If Sherry's killer did attend the service, he would see Dawn with the bear. With any luck, he might return after the service finished to take the bear as a souvenir. Detectives stood out of sight, taking down license plates numbers of the vehicles that attended the service. Once finished, they hid, lied, and waited for their suspect to appear and take the bear. But he never did. Just after midnight on June 23rd, the Smiths got another call. While Sherry's killer had not been brought out in the open yet by the memorial service, it clearly awoke something in him. No doubt he wanted to go to the service, but he did not feel safe about it. Instead, he satisfied his need for attention by calling the Smiths again. Dawn answered the phone. Of course, she never wanted to speak to him, but keeping him on the phone was vital in tracking down who killed her sister. As he had a number of times before, he brought God into the conversation. He found that playing God was satisfying. Perhaps citing God on his phone calls made him less guilty, but I think it's more likely that he knew the Smiths were dedicated Christians and he derived pleasure from bringing God into his taunts. A further indication that he was beginning to feel untouchable was the fact that he no longer distorted his voice for the phone calls to the Smiths. The first thing he said to Dawn was alarming. God wants you to join Sherry Faye, he said to Dawn. It was only a matter of time, and she couldn't be protected forever, he warned her. Then he changed the subject to what he really wanted to talk to Dawn about. He asked her if she had heard of Deborah May Helmick. At first, she did not recall. Then she remembered a young girl had been abducted from Richland County. Listen carefully, he said. Then he rattled off a series of directions, just as he did weeks ago to the phone with Hilda, her mother, and gave directions to Sherry's body. He ended up calling and saying, Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all. It was like deja vu for the detectives. They followed the directions he gave them, knowing what they would find when they reached their destination, filled with dread. Sure enough, just off a dirt road amongst thick brush laid the body of Deborah May Helmick. Sherry and Deborah's killer was enjoying having the detectives and the Smith family at his mercy. As was covered in the FBI profile of him, he was above average intelligence. He knew not to leave any evidence on the bodies that could be traced back to him. His fun was about to come to an end, though. Thanks to the piece of evidence he had practically placed directly in the hands of the detectives. Sherry's last will and testament letter. Given that the letter was written on paper from a legal pad and not just a loose sheet of paper, there was a good chance that the things the killer had written on previous sheets from the pad could have left indentations on the sheets Sherry wrote her letter on. Forensic document examiner Mickey Dawson used an electrostatic detection apparatus on the letter to detect any of these sorts of indentations. What he found was pretty incredible. The machine detected a list of names and phone numbers. It appeared that it was a call-in-case-of-emergency sort of list. One phone number was nearly complete, only missing the final digit. It began with 205, which showed it was an Alabama number.
The next three digits, 837, was the exchange for Huntsville, Alabama. Detectives had nine out of ten digits they needed, and there was only nine possibilities for what the tenth digit could be. They tested the phone number with the nine different options for the tenth digit until someone picked up the phone. It was a young man who answered the phone. Detectives asked, Do you have any connections to South Carolina? And he told them yes, his parents lived there. The young man's father was Ellis Shepard, lived just 15 miles from the Smith's home. Ellis Shepard had no clue how he could help the detectives, but he agreed to speak to them. He told them he had been on vacation with his wife when Sherry Smith had disappeared. Then they played Shepard the recording of the killer's later phone calls to the Smiths, in which the voice was not distorted. Immediately, Shepard was able to identify the voice. That's Larry Jean Bell, Shepard exclaimed. Larry Jean Bell had been house-sitting while they were on vacation, Shepard explained. One examination of Shepard's phone's records from when they were away, detectives discovered some of the calls to the Smith's home after Sherry was kidnapped was made from the Shepherd's home. The Shepherds explained they had left the list of phone numbers for Bell while they were away. The list included the number to his son who lived in Alabama. When Bell picked up Ellis Shepherd and his wife from the airport after their vacation, he was not himself. He was nervous and on edge. He had not shaved and he'd lost weight. All he wanted to talk about was the missing Smith girl. Bell was a textbook example of a killer beginning to lose his cool. The behaviors he was exhibiting are preciously what the FBI analysis were looking for. Sheriff Metz would later discuss the application of behavioral analysis in this case. Research in the field was in its early stages at the time, but he explained John Douglas, as well as other agents from the FBI, worked with the case and worked with him. Their profile of Sherry and Deborah's killer was on spot. The only part they were slightly off on was his age. Bell was slightly older than the agents thought. He was 35, and they guessed he would be in his late 20s to early 30s. They were, however, correct regarding the following. Bell was white and slightly overweight, although he had lost weight since kidnapping and murdering Sherry. He was divorced, he was intelligent, and he had good knowledge of electronics. Bell's past also included sexually motivated crimes. He had been caught harassing women over the phone before, making threats of sexual nature. He had also attempted to kidnap a female student from University of South Carolina, but he failed. On June 27, 1985, 28 days after kidnapping and murdering Sherry Smith, Bell was arrested. Police found further evidence in the shepherd's home, which incriminated Bell. Six long blonde hairs that were almost definitely Sherry's. I don't believe they were forensically tested, but they were said to be microscopically similar to her hair. They did not belong to Miss Shepherd or anyone in the shepherd's new. Bell denied having anything to do with the kidnapping and deaths of Sherry Smith and Deborah Helmick, but rather than just Outright denying it, he claimed it was the bad Larry Jean Bell who was guilty for the murders. 
In February 1986, Bell went to trial for the murder of Sherry Smith. He made a scene during his six-hour-long testimony, yelling and making bizarre comments like the following, Mona Lisa is a man, and silence is golden, my friend. It was obvious he was attempting to manipulate the jury into believing he was insane, but nobody bought it. The jury deliberated for just 47 minutes. They returned verdicts of guilty on both charges of kidnapping and first-degree murder in the case of Sherry Smith. Bell was sentenced to death. He was tried separately in 1987 for the kidnapping and murder of Deborah Helmick. The jury in the trial came back with the same verdict, guilty on both counts. It was not only Sherry and Deborah's family and friends who were shaken by the horrible acts of Larry Jean Bell. The entire state of South Carolina was on edge from the time Sherry was kidnapped to the day Bell was arrested. Worried parents were weary of letting their children outside to play without adult supervision. Teen girls were feared, and for good reason. They began traveling in groups no matter how short the distance. To walk alone for even the shortest time was not worth the risk. Even after Bell was arrested, the fear never completely lifted. The scars it inflicted on the communities, Sherry and Deborah left behind, though faded, still remain to this day. She would, she would tell you something, even if it would get her in trouble. She would tell the truth. Whereas Becky, she'd tell you a hot mess, lie. He ain't, she ain't telling the truth. But um, Deborah well, always did. She And um, I, I remember when she was little, I had punished her one time. She had done something I can't remember. We had a little poodle named Sissy. She was a little teacup poodle, apricot teapot, teacup poodle. Well, she would get that that dog by her paw, and she would walk with her. She would walk on her back feet, and she would walk with her. Well... When she got in trouble that day and I put her like in timeout, I heard her in there with the dog and she put her in timeout with her because she said, you have to stay here until I tell you it's time to get up. And she stayed right there with her. There didn't seem to be as much publicity on little Deborah May Helmick. I believe everyone deserves the same spotlight. Another life taken way too soon. My name is Deborah Johnson. Um, I was born and raised in Canton, Ohio. I'm a transplanted Yankee. Um, but I came to South Carolina with my first husband. And um, we were living in, when we first came down, we lived in Blythewood, South Carolina. And that was where his mother lived. And then we left from there. When we left from there, that was when we got the trailer on Old Percival Road. And that was where we were living when my daughter was kidnapped. We hadn't even lived there two weeks. We didn't have a phone or anything. We watched TV. My daughter, Deborah May Helmick, she would watch the TV with us, and she'd say, Mama, she's so pretty. You know, they would show pictures of Sherry. And um, never thinking that anything like that would happen with us, you know. I mean, it was just not even 
even when it happened, they didn't think the two cases were related. You had moved into this home. It was a trailer park. It was called Shiloh Trailer, Shiloh Mobile Home Park. I think there were only like 13 trailers in the whole park. It was very small. And we were in the very first trailer when you pull in where the mailboxes, you know how they have the mailboxes set and they're all together. Mm -hmm. And um, we were in the very first trailer. How far from the main road do you think that home sat? Probably not even, maybe about 10 feet, maybe 12 feet or something like that. Okay, so it, very close. Mm -hmm. The main road was very close. When did you and Mr. Helmick meet, and what was your relationship with him like? When did we meet? Mm -hmm. Well, we met when I was 12 years old, and he was 14, and he came home with my brother um, for the weekend to spend the weekend with him because they were in school together. And the very first day he saw me, he said, I'm going to marry you one day. And I said, no. I said, you have two strikes against you. Number one, you're redheaded, and number two, you're a hillbilly. He was from West Virginia. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. Um, so when did y'all marry? I turned 18 in January of 70. What was it? 70. 75 and I left home right after that we went to West Virginia and we got we got married on March 11th of 75 and then when was your first child born Deborah May was born um, November November 12th 1975 she was the first child mm -hmm. the oldest okay yes and you had a total of three children Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, my second daughter, Rebecca, she lives right next door. She's a registered nurse. She's four years younger than Deborah May. And then I had Woody, which his name is Sherwood, but we call him Woody. Um, I had him two years after Becky. morning my husband had got up to get go to work he worked in construction and um, our car was broke down of course so Johnny Flake he came and picked him up to go to work and at that time they were digging a footer in a doctor's office up there by hand well Johnny had um, kidney stones and he was in a lot of pain so um, Throughout the day, he got more and more in pain, but that's getting ahead of myself. Um, well, he left and went to work, and then um, I didn't have a way to get to work. when I, I worked at Ray Lever's Barbecue Hut in Blythewood, and, it, and I was supposed to leave at 3.30, so I had met one girl in the trailer park, and she was in the very last trailer on the same side we were, and her name was Vicki. I can't remember her last name. 
but she she had we had made arrangements for her to take me to work and she had a couple children and then you know I had Deborah, Becky and Woody. He was you know, he was like you're still carrying him on your hip. And um so um we had made arrangements to go all together even though we didn't have enough space in the car, we were all going to go. And um she was going to take me to work. Well, about anyway about Two o'clock that afternoon, <clears throat> I had um, gave the two girls a bath and brushed their hair and put little hair breadths in their hair. And any time I left there, the kids were all with me. I never left, you know, wherever I went, they were right there with me. And um, I don't know what something else was going on that day, but I can't remember. It was something about my sister-in-law that. Nobody could find her or something, and then I was like, I was going to the, um, our landlord lived right next to my trailer. Like, our trailer was first, then the landlord's trailer was the second trailer. So I went over there a couple times and used the phone, you know, to call, just to find out if anybody had seen her or whatever. But, I mean, there was no big deal happened out of that. Well, anyway, after I had done that, about 3.30, here come my husband in and Johnny and they came in and um, he said that Johnny was in so much pain he couldn't work anymore that day so that's why they came in that early that day so right after that the girl came to take me to work well um, she had enough room for one child to ride you know and since their dad was there you know that was I knew you know the kids could stay there with him and she said and Deborah May said, well, let Becky ride because it's her turn to ride anyway or something like that. So when I left there, we took Becky with me and her and her children. And Deborah was right there and she had Woody on her hip. You know, she was holding him just like I always did. And she said, and, and Woody will be okay. I'll take care of him, you know. And um, that was the last time I saw her. So we went and drove to the barbecue restaurant, and then right after I got there, I had the job of doing the baked beans, so I had to go back to the back part of the restaurant to get the big cans of pork and beans. And I was sitting back there, and I was, I'm out standing there, I was uh, opening up the can, and it probably was about five or ten after four, maybe, because I had already clocked in, and all of a sudden I got really cold you know like I, it was like a chill like something wasn't right and then I started hearing the phone ringing at the barbecue restaurant and I thought nobody ever calls here this early you know because we're not even open yet you know mm -hmm. and um so I went back into the kitchen area and was putting this stuff together and the phone just kept ringing and then Mrs. Lever it was Ray Lever's barbecue hut and she came out of her office and she said don't anybody answer the phone I'll get it in my office that was weird. Well, anyway, I just I just had a funny feeling something wasn't right. And then here she comes out of the office, and she said, Deborah, she said, go um, go get your purse. Don't worry about clocking out. Your mother-in-law's out in the parking lot. And I said, for what? She said, just go with your mother-in-law. Because she lived right there in Blythewood, and she had gotten off work. What all the phone calls was about was... My husband at the time, we didn't have a phone. He broke a window at the manager's 
trailer because he needed to get to a phone. And he used their phone that way. And he had called Mrs. Lever, and she was like, I can't tell her anything like this, you know. And um, <clears throat> so she was. they were both trying to get hold of my mother-in-law, and she had done came in from work, and she was in the shower, so they were having a hard time getting hold of her. So they finally got hold of her. Well, <clears throat> evidently when, after I had left, you know, and then, like I said, I was there at work, and then all that feeling... It was probably around the almost the identical same time that he got Sherry two weeks before when he got Sherry Smith. The time frame it just felt perfect. And um, but anyhow, he was it. My husband was in there, and Johnny was on the couch. And I guess he had went to the other opposite end of the trailer, and Deborah and Woody were outside. And, you know, they had the window air conditioners, and this was in June. And, I mean, it was hitting almost 100 every day at that time. And um, they were playing right there. The world, there was, like, some dirt right there, and they were, like, right under that air conditioner. Well, this boy named Ricky Morgan, we had just met him the night before, and he was on the opposite side of the trailer park, and he was probably about three or four trailers down on that side. He worked an early shift at... Hardy, so he was just getting up that around four that afternoon, and he said he was standing at his window and he was mixing up some frozen orange juice and he was just stirring it. And he saw that car pull in. He saw the car pull in and it went to the end and then it pulled back up and it pulled up beside the mailboxes right there. And he said he was just watching because he said he didn't recognize the car. And then he said he saw the guy get out and he walked over to where the two kids were and. He said it looked like he had, like, a bag maybe in his hand or something, but he really couldn't tell. But um, <coughs> he reached down and he grabbed my daughter from behind, and he said he knew something was wrong then because she was kicking at her. You know, she was, like, trying to get away. And by the time he got out, Woody had went over to where he went up the steps to go into the trailer, but he wasn't tall enough to reach the doorknob or anything, so he was just crouched down right by a little bush that was right there. And Ricky got to the door, and he got my husband, or, or, no, let's see, Johnny said something about it. He said, man, he said, I think I hear your daughter out there hollering, and he started through the trailer, and he said, all them kids are always fussing about something. And when he, by the time he got to the door, Ricky was there, and he said, man, somebody just came and grabbed your daughter. So they jumped in Johnny's car and sped out of there trying to find the vehicle because the boy told him what kind of car it was and everything. I can't remember. But um, they went out, and I mean, they went out, and the interstate was really close right there. So you know, I-20 was real close right there. And so they, they jumped out and went out. They couldn't see the car anywhere. So that was when he came back, and the uh, managers were gone, and he broke the window to get in to call the police. Before any of this happened, had you ever heard of the name Larry Jean Bell? No. No. Only, you know, like on TV, just with him getting Sherry Smith you know, and all that was going on with that. We kept up with that. I mean, it was on the news all the time, you know. Every time the news came on, you know, her picture was right there. And um, like I said, we'd sit there watching it, and Deborah May would say, Mama, she's so pretty, you know, because she, she was a very pretty girl. And um, 
I didn't. Would you say it was just probably a spur of the moment thing? Like you didn't notice that a certain car following you, watching you, watching your home? No. The only thing, we finally figured out why he was on Old Percival Road. If you go down Old Percival Road, then you go back after you get to the end of it and you turn back to the left, his Larry Jean Bell's sister lived back that way somewhere and evidently he was heading to his sister's and this is two weeks to the day, you know, almost to the hour. And he went past there and evidently when he saw my daughter and saw the blonde hair, you know, and she was like sitting on the ground, he probably never realized how old she was. He just thought, oh, two weeks ago I got by with this, so, you know, here's another opportunity. And I think he just decided you know, right then and there to do that. How old was Deborah May at the time? She was nine and a half years old. She wasn't ten yet? Okay. No, she would have been ten that November. Okay. And this was um, June 14th when this happened. June 14th, 1985. daughter when she was getting ready to turn nine years old she cried and I was asking her why and she said she didn't want to turn nine because she didn't want to get kidnapped like her sister as far as them having any kind of fear from anything they they never showed any except he did whenever uh, Woody did when he was little Every time we'd go somewhere, if he saw somebody that had any hair on their face, he'd say, that's the kidnapping man, and he'd try to hide. Well, he, he was potty broke and everything, and then a couple times he'd have accidents through the night. Sometimes in the night he would get up crying and screaming. And then even after, like, I left from up there and I got with Raymond, my new, my new husband, even when we came here, I would have to go in there at night sometimes, and he'd want me to hold his hand until he went to sleep. And that was in, um, that was uh, in um, 89 when I came here. Um, he took her to Gilbert, South Carolina, and I'm not exactly sure how far that is from Columbia. Um, but, you know, you try to find out all kinds of answers about different things, so... We decided we were going to go to this psychic to see if she could tell us anything. Well, I wasn't real keen about going, but my husband, he's like, well, she's been good. You know, she, she's been good. She's helped Sheriff Powell, the sheriff that was sheriff at the time in Columbia. Oh, she's helped him with different cases and stuff. Well... He never, the sheriff never admitted that she did, but her name was brought up by somebody. I don't even know how it was brought up. But we went there. She lived um, off, up, up by, um, up around Casey, somewhere up in there. And I used to know the name of the road, but I can't remember it now. It's been too long. Um, but anyway, she, when we got there, she was like, she looked at me and she looked at him and she was like, I, I need to, talk with him I I feel more with him than I do with you because you know I was very skeptical and she felt that okay well when they were talking she said every time she she would tell him she did not see her being alive 
that she was not going to be found alive. She said that, that she just could not see it. And then she said the person that was involved in it messed with electricity somehow. And Larry Jean Bell was an electrician's helper. Then she said this big S kept coming in. A big S. A big S kept showing up. You go down I-20, the, the exit you get off in Gilbert, there's a big Sheraton Hotel and there's a big S right there. I know. So, so she could see all that. She was seeing all this stuff. And this she was said, before they found yes, her? Yes, before they found her, yes. Wow. And um, then she said, and she would be close to water, maybe not a lake, maybe not an ocean, but she said small water, and it was like a little creek that ran there where they found her body at. Because wow. he called the Smith house and gave them directions to my daughter's body. After Deborah May was kidnapped, he still was calling the Smith house. Because Dawn, she'd answered the phone and he asked her, Did you hear about Deborah May Helmick, the little girl? You know, he would call. He was kept calling the Smith house. And then, you know, when the call came that he said, Listen carefully. And then he would describe where to go get the, where they're waiting, they're, they're, they're there waiting for you. But they aren't waiting for you. They're dead already. And, um, but he did that. He, he called there and gave directions of where her body was and everything. She was very smart. She, um, before Becky ever started kindergarten, she knew everything because Deborah was her teacher. She wanted to be either a school teacher or a principal of a school. And now my granddaughter, Deborah, is a teacher down in Jasper County. They named her after her? Yes. Having Deborah, and um, when she was born, she was so, she had looked like her hair was almost black. And Becky's hair is not black, and neither was her dad the baby's dad and um I kept looking at her and her eyes were so blue and I kept saying baby your hair ought to be blonde and about six months it started changing I have pictures in the hallway I'll let you look at um and when I first took her to Ohio because I'm from Canton Ohio my youngest sister she came into my mom's and as soon as she saw my granddaughter she just busted out crying and had to run out the room because she said it was like she was seeing Deborah May all over again. And I said, you know, I feel like um, a lot of people say, you know, God will try to replace things when you have an empty spot in your heart, and I think that's what he did there. Did you go to any of the trials? We went. Um, Donnie Myers... He was the solicitor at the time. He um, actually asked us if we wanted to go to Monk's. Was it Monk's Corner where they did the Smith case? No. Where did they do? Yes. Donnie said he wanted us to go to observe because we were going to be going through the same kind of trial. And he wanted us to go to Monk's Corner and observe the, you know. So we did. And, um... 
Belle showed out, you know, several different times, you know, telling Dawn that he loved her and he, you know, he'd yell out to her and different things like that. It was just weird. But he didn't do any of that during our trial. But then after years and years and years went by and the execution was coming up and they decided that they were going to um, do all these psychological testings on him to make sure he knew what he was facing and what was coming up. You know, his execution was coming up. It was in, uh, was it in 90, I can't remember what year he was executed. I want to say 92, but I'm not sure. 92 or 93. It's one of those. But anyway, they were doing all that psychological testing, and they were doing that. And they did that in Greenwood. So me and my mother-in-law at the time, we, well, my ex-mother-in-law at that time, we uh, drove up there to observe the trial and all. And Becky was a junior in high school at that time. And she wanted to go one day, so I took her out of school to let her go with us because she said she wanted to see what a murderer looked like. Well, so we got there, and when we sat down, he turns around and he just looks. He just looked at everybody. He didn't say anything or anything, you know. He looked really, um, I guess he had been having some kind of medical problems while he was in prison, and I'm sure he had very good health care. But, um... He just looked like, he didn't look nothing like he did in 85. Did y'all go to the execution? I did. Um, I didn't want to go, and then um, I spoke with the lady from the Department of Corrections, and she said, well, you know, someone should be there to represent her. And I said, I, I understand that. And my ex-husband at the time, he he was an alcoholic so they said if he comes there and he smells like alcohol they're not going to let him go back there so when I talked with I think her name was Barbara Grissom and she she said you're strong she said you can do this you can you can go to the execution and I said so from that point on I said well I'm going to be there to represent my daughter and Mr. and Mrs. Smith never went um, they um, had Mrs. Smith's brother he came to the execution. And I just remember, there was a, the, when we went in the room, it was like the curtain was pulled, but you could hear noise going around in there. You don't know. And I'm sitting there, and my heart's just, because you don't know what to expect when they're going to open up that curtain, you know. And um, I guess they asked him if he if he had anything he wanted to say to the families or anything, and I guess he refused to say anything to anybody. And um, so when they opened it up, they were setting him down in the he sat down in the chair. They they did all the um, had his hands up there and did the straps and his feet and strap and all that and. Um, they put a hood thing over his head, which he, he sat there like this. He wouldn't even, like, open his eyes to look at nobody. He just sat there with his eyes closed. And, um, so when they, they hit the power or something, you could see he, he clenched like that. And it, his body just went forward in the chair. And I think it, he, they did it probably three or four times, maybe. And each time they did it, the doctor whoever's there had was listening for heartbeat and all that 
But each time they hit him, he did that. And um, they had a lot of different media in there, you know, different people to see. They were actually not really watching the execution. They wanted to see what we were doing. You know, they wanted to see our reactions. And I remember him saying that <clears throat> I had tears in my eyes when I came out of there. And I said that because I had no pleasure watching that, you know, I didn't, it didn't like say, oh, I'm so glad he's dead. You know, I, I, I had no pleasure watching him die, even though he took my daughter's life, you know. Mm -hmm. But I, I didn't get any pleasure from it, none. And then, <clears throat> but I did, I, I hated that man, you know, and I never hated in my life, ever. But for almost 10 years, I had hatred in my heart until I met my new husband's mother. She brought me through all of that, where I could forgive him. And she said, you've carried it, carried it long enough. So I really appreciate her. She, um, she passed away in 2003. And um, and he loved his mother. I mean, <laughs> but she was the sweetest lady. And you know, I grew up. There was not a lot of affection in my family. You know, I have um, there were eleven of us, and Mama and Daddy. And um, because two of my sisters was from my dad's first marriage, and um, they grew up with us. And there was no hugging when you would leave, you know, say bye and get a hug or, or something. His mama, my husband's mama, she was nothing but affection, you know. She, if she, and she only lived just right up the road, and she always had to hug you and give you a kiss goodbye. And she'd call me like almost every day. We'd stay on the phone for hours at a time, and my husband said, "What do you guys find to talk about?" I said, "You." I said, "She's telling me all about you." <laughs> but like I said, she she's the one that brought me through all of this. And then even the Sunday before the execution, I go to church at Calvary Baptist Church here in Marmel. And I told the preacher, I said, um, when I pray, I pray that he would accept Jesus as his Savior, that he would go to heaven and not have to go to hell. And I said, I pray for his soul. And... Um, he said, Deborah, he said, that's got to be the most Christian thing I ever heard. <laughs> For real. But um, I was worried about his salvation. I was worried about his soul. Um, did he ever apologize? Never. No, no, never. Miss Deborah is a strong woman. I enjoyed sitting with her, and even though it's not easy. She still enjoys getting to talk about her angel. Her memory will live on forever. As far as Bell, he claimed to be the Son of God and told doctors he was Jesus Christ and received direct revelations from God. In prison, he smeared his own feces on himself and the walls and drank his own urine. There were no reports of Bell being a violent prisoner. When given the choice of lethal injection or the electric chair, he chose the chair because he was an electrician and said he would quickly be sent to heaven to be with the girls he killed. Bell had no final words. On October 4, 1996, after 10 years on death row, Bell silently died in the electric chair. Larry Jean Bell, 47, was pronounced dead at 1.12 a.m. 
He was the last death row inmate in South Carolina to be executed by the chair in 1996 until James Neil Tucker in 2004 for double murder. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Murder Mondays. Show your support at buymeacoffee.com slash murdermondays. Be sure to follow Murder Mondays on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, friends.